How are we doing, Terrence? Doing all right. I hope you're ready to get real, fellas. I hope you are ready for this. Uh, if you got your Bibles, grab them. We're going to be in Ephesians chapter 5. In case you weren't here last week, uh, you missed week one of Dysfunctional Family. We talked about God's call in the uh, life of a wife in the family, and so we will talk very little about that. Uh, I will say this, ladies, you handled that message with such grace. And I really appreciate it. I really do. I thank you for the encouragement uh, via email. Because last week, you know, me talking about the role of a wife is kind of like a, you know, a Catholic priest doing marriage counseling. It's just sort of theological, you better trust the book, because what do you know, right? And so, but this week I'm an expert. We are going to talk about husbands, and the reason that I'm an expert is I have a confession to make. I suck. <laughs> and Gretchen hates it when I say that word, but she's not here. Uh, and honestly, I could just make this a four-part series on just confessions of how your pastor fails in accordance with what God's standard for being a husband is. And so, this is pretty much, if you don't get anything out of this, I don't care. It'll just be therapeutic for my own soul as I do my own quiet time up here. And here we go. We're going to use the exact same text that we used last week. I think when we talk about husbands and wives in the book of Ephesians, um, even though the, the people that put together, together the ESV and the NIV and the KJV, all those versions of the Bible. Uh, by the way, I use the LPV, the large print version. And uh, I think you've got to back up. Like we talked about last week, there is a banner over which the husbands and wives text lives under. We talked about this last week, but let's go ahead and review. It starts in verse 20, giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Again, this is all review, but the banner of a good marriage, the banner over which a good marriage lives is three things, gratitude Versus entitlement. That's the first one. It's gratitude. Give thanks. Husbands, when's the last time you said thank you to your wife? And, and just as important, when's the last time you got on your knees before the almighty king of the universe and said thank you, thank you, thank you that you would bring her into my life? Unspoken gratitude is useless. So that we should first and foremost be thankful. The second part of the banner is this, mutual submission. Versus selfish negotiation. And most of the time in our marriages, men, and by the way, ladies, here's your rules, okay? I don't need any amens. I don't need any preach it, brother. None of those, mm, none of that. Just, just receive, okay? But versus, versus selfish negotiation, because, man, we can be incredible negotiators with our wives, and in essence, what we're trying to do is buy them off so that we can get what I want. That's it. And, and the banner over a healthy, God-glorifying marriage is mutual submission. And the third is the gospel. It says that we submit to one another out of reverence for Christ versus relational dynamics and com communication techniques. Listen, bro, what you have to do, if you don't know Jesus, I don't know how to tell you to be married because in just a second we're going to see that you're supposed to love her like Jesus loves you. And if you don't know the love of Jesus, you don't know how to fully love your wife. The greatest thing you could do for your wife is love Jesus, period. He will change you in a supernatural way. And, and the spirit of God that brought 
Jesus out of the grave lives, will live inside of you when you surrender your life to Christ and you will have a supernatural power to love your wife in a way that you cannot without the help of Jesus. And so that's, that's the banner. And then wives, we talked about this last part, wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Fellas, the implication here is that you are following Jesus. The implication here is that you are following Jesus. Can you say what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 11.1? 1? Paul says, follow me as I follow Jesus. Can you say that? What if your wife had the relationship with Christ that you have? Would, would she be demoted or would that be a good thing? See, and a lot of times, a bunch of husbands just get really, really lazy in their relationship with Jesus. And you don't understand that your personal relationship with Jesus ain't all personal. It has some serious implications on your household and your children and your grandchildren. I'm telling you, man, I've been doing this church thing a long time. So goes dad, so goes the house. I mean, we see it over and over and over. We see a family show up here at 1122, and if the kid surrenders their life to Jesus, maybe something will happen in the family. The mama surrenders her life to Jesus, maybe something happens in the family. But when the head of the house surrenders to Jesus, I'm telling you almost every single time, the whole house is won over for Jesus. So if you're going to be the head, which is it is a high and noble task, to be tasked to be a husband. And you will either be a good one or you will be a bad one. It means that you take on all the responsibility in your house. It means that you begin to understand that the strength given to you by God is not for you. That God gave you this strength. God gave you this mantle of leadership so that constantly, on a daily basis, you would leverage the authority that God has given you for the sake of everyone around you at great expense to yourself. The truth is this. When men lead and love well, everyone flourishes. Think about this. Most nonprofits that are started is because some man did not do his job. Think about it. Some husband, some dad, some leader did not do his job. So it is a great and noble task that God has called us to. Now, it says, Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord. Verse 23, For the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should Submit in everything to their husbands. Now, based on that, if you just read these verses, if you'd never read the, this text before, and if you had only heard the sermon that I preached last week, and you didn't know what the next verse said, you would think it would say something like, therefore, husbands, lead like a boss. Or husbands, you're in charge. Or husbands, you're the king. It doesn't say it anywhere. I can't find one place where it says husbands lead. It says this, husbands, love your wives. Now listen, um, I know in the 21st century, people aren't super stoked about the fact that the Bible says wives submit and husbands lead. Think about in the first century what the radical part of this was. The radical part in the first century was not wives submit. In the first century, women weren't even citizens. They couldn't vote. The gospel elevated the role of the woman as God has designed. In the first century, you know what the radical part was? The radical part was that men would love their wives. You see, it says, husbands, love 
your wives, as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Now, quite honestly, what does that mean? How, husband, how do you love your wife like Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her? Now, the word there in Greek is agape. In English, we just have one word for love. It's love, and, and it means a lot. Like, I love Jesus, and I love my wife, and I love tacos, and I love all kind of stuff, right? Here, the word is agape. Now, there's a bunch of words. And here, Paul does not say husbands eros. That's another word, eros. We get the word erotic from it. He doesn't say eros, you wife. That, that, that means that your marriage is not built on just kind of these romantic feelings towards her. Are those important? Praise God. Yes, they're important. You try to build a marriage on that, it won't last. It won't last. It also doesn't use the word phileo, which means like a friendship kind of love. Is that important? I said last week, a really good marriage is a really good friendship. And yet, the kind of love a husband is supposed to have for his wife is this agape love. It is a sacrificial kind of love. It's the kind of love that all throughout the New Testament, it describes God's love for us. For God so agape the world. For God so loved the world, he gave his only begotten son. And this is how we are to love our wives. Man, we could spend the whole time just describing what this kind of love is, fellas. I'll give you seven. Number one, pursue her. Pursue her like God pursued you. In, in our salvation, God is the initiator. You're not the initiator. You didn't find him. He came and found you. Romans 5, 8 says, but God demonstrates his love for us in this. While we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us. That means that if your wife was here last week and applied zero of the message... Your response to that this week and for the rest of your life is you love her and you go first. That you pursue her like Christ pursued you. And you're like, yeah, but it's hard. Look at the cross and shut your face. That's what you do, okay? (laughs) Secondly, God lavishes his love on us. He doesn't give us just enough love to get what he wants. He lavishes his love on us. Oh, what manner of love the Father has lavished upon us that we would be called children of God. Does does your wife feel like you lavish love upon her? Or or do you just kind of love her on Friday nights when it pops in your head? Hey, this could go good for me. That's not a lavish kind of love. That is selfish manipulation to get what you want. Me too, man. I get it. Lavish love is I'll do with less so that you can have more. Lavish love is not uh, you see her coming home with some bags from the, from the store and you're like, what'd you get? That's not lavish love. Lavish love is like for sure. Now, you can't go into debt for some more shoes. That's not what I'm talking about. But you agree on stuff and have a budget and all that kind of stuff for sure. But as you're having those kind of conversations, you are figuring out how you could do less and less and less and less of what you want so she can have more and more and more and more of what she wants. She should feel absolutely spoiled by you. Just don't act like it. That's that lavish, like there's a whole bunch of love just wasted all over the place because you keep dumping it on her and dumping it on her and dumping it on her. Like with your words, you should lavish her with compliments. Do you? Here's the test, fellas. Just look through your texts. Just look through your last hundred texts. And how many of your texts have been lavishing love upon her or have they been critical towards her? You see, 
God pursues us. God lavishes his love upon us. God takes responsibility for everything. A part of the way husbands are to love their wives like Christ loved the church is we take responsibility for everything in our household. And if you got, yeah, but it's not my fault. Shut up and look at the cross. That's what I should have called this thing. Shut up and look at the cross. <laughs> Think about this. Listen, when you fight with your wife, you got two options. You can be right or you can be a husband. Those are your options. Because when Christ came to this earth, he could have been right or he could have been the Savior. Those were his options. Our sin was not his fault. And at the cross, Jesus takes responsibility for our sin, and he had nothing to do with it. And he could have shown up, and he could have been right. And he could have said, look, man, I'm not dying for you. You're a sinner. I'm perfect. You go to hell. I'm going back to heaven. I'll see you. Actually, I won't see you anymore. Peace. Go to hell. That's what he could have done. And he'd have been right. He would have been right. And yet, instead of that, he takes responsibility for something that is not his fault at all, and he pays the full price, and it was not his fault. And Paul says, that's how you love her. Fault, is, fault is, has nothing to do with the Scriptures. Love is about responsibility. And to love your wife like Christ loves the church, say, I'm taking responsibility. Let me get this real practical. Fellas, um, it's not your responsibility uh, it's not your wife's responsibility for homework and to go to PTA and to have the parent-teacher meetings and all of that stuff. It is all your responsibility. You might decide as a couple to divvy out the responsibilities that way, but it is all your responsibility. That is a part of how you love your wife like Christ loved the church. Fourth, the way Christ loves us, he loves us with an inexhaustible forgiveness. An inexhaustible forgiveness. The Colossians chapter 2 tells us that at the cross, our record of debt is nailed to the cross. And let me tell you what we are famous for, men. Man, we keep a scorecard. We keep a scorecard. Every time she lets us down, every time she sins against us, every time she drip, 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 whatever, man, we keep this little scorecard. And, and, and here's why. When some people fight, they get hysterical. When I, get, when I fight, I get historical. I'm like, oh, yeah, that's how it is. Well, check it out. Back in 2001, Christ doesn't keep a scorecard on us. Aren't you glad? Aren't you glad that by his stripes we are healed? There's an inexhaustible forgiveness that he offers us. Peter goes to Jesus and says, how many times do we got to forgive people? Like seven? Now, when Peter asked that, Peter thought he was the junk. Because the Old Testament standard is not forgive. It's eye for eye, tooth for tooth. You punch me, I punch you back. That is the Old Testament standard. And Jesus says, forgive one another. And he's like, all right, well, how many times? Seven. And Peter thought he was standing there with like a big super disciple in his cape in the wind. <laughs> and Jesus is like, uh, how about 70 and seven? It'd be like saying a bazillion to us. Seven, the number of completion, times seven with a zero on it. It's like a Google. It's a ton, all right? And that's how Christ treats us. And so we should have an inexhaustible amount of forgiveness towards our wife. A fifth way that we can love our wives like Christ loved the church is this, is to crucify your will. It's to crucify your will. Yeah, you might not get what you want. And, and, it, 
and then laying that down and laying that down. Actually, man, the closer you get to Jesus, the more what you want will change. Because what you'll want is to love your wife like you, to love your wife like Christ loved the church. The scoreboard in your own mind will begin to change. That you will begin to understand that serving her is a much better win than going fishing that day. And so Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane. And he says, Father, if there be any other way, take this cup for me. Not my will, but your will be done. That he would die for us and the glory of God. And Paul says, that, that's how you love her. Now, doesn't this make um, fighting about if you can play golf this Saturday just seem kind of silly? Shut up and look at the cross. Okay, he died, and I really want to play golf. <laughs> Crazy. Husbands, I'll tell you what. 99.9% of our marital issues is this. We took our eyes off of the cross, period. You put your eyes on the cross, I'm telling you, loving her will be like the air you breathe. It's just what you'll do. But the moment you take your eye off the cross and you put it on yourself and our own selfish desires, then that's when everything gets all jacked up. The sixth way to love your wife like Christ loved the church. Jesus. The Bible says Jesus, knowing that all things had been put under his authority, he got up from the table, dressed himself as a servant to show his disciples the full extent of his love. He dressed himself as the lowest of low servants, and he washed his disciples' feet. And then he says to his disciples, when he gets done with this, he says, I have set for you an example. You will be blessed if you do likewise. So husbands, part of the way you can love your wife like Christ loved the church is wash her feet. And usually that's, that's like figurative. It probably is literal for your wife. She's probably into that. Rub her feet a little bit, and she would like that probably. But what it means is you get to wake up every single day knowing that it's your house, knowing that you're the head, knowing that you have the authority. And what you do is you lay down that authority. You leverage that authority to serve her. Here's what it means. is that You do the, the worst job in the house. You take on the worst job in the house as your own so she doesn't have to. What is that? Clean the toilets? Do it. Take out whatever it is, whatever she likes to do the least, you make that your number one job. And that's how. That's how you love her. You get, you get an opportunity every day to serve her like Christ served the church. A seventh one. Look, this, this is not complete. This is just seven things I thought of. Ways to love our wives like Christ loved the church is we don't react, but we respond in love. We don't react. We respond in love. Imagine if Jesus reacted to us the way we react to our wives. We'd all be dead. That's, that's what would happen. We sinned against Jesus, and he was like, what? And he responded that way. Think about it. Um, Jesus is in the Garden of Gethsemane after he prays, not my will, but your will be done. He wakes up the disciples who were supposed to be praying with them, and he goes, hey, the time has come. He looks over the Kidron Valley to the western gate of Jerusalem, and he sees some men coming with torches and swords, and they come walking up to him. And Peter reacts to the situation. You see, he, Peter thinks, you, you, you come to take my Lord, well, take this. And Peter pulls out a sword and chops off a dude's ear. In this analogy, Peter is like most husbands. You don't get what you want. 
you react. You know what react means? Someone acts and then you react. You mimic that kind of behavior. Have you ever reacted your way into deep abiding intimacy with your wife? No, man, when she cusses you and you cuss back, she doesn't think, you know what? He's probably right. I am being up. No. <laughs> Never, ever. You're just giving her evidence of how right she is and what a horrible human you are. You see, Jesus picks up the dude's ear and puts it back on his head. Here's the craziest thing. The dude came to arrest him and still arrest him after he puts his ear back on. That's crazy to me. You ever think about that? I think about stuff like that. And he looks at Peter and he's like, really? So when you react to your wife in unloving ways, I'm telling you, I think Jesus looks at you like he looks at Peter. He's like, what? Really? If you live by the sword, you die by the sword. And the Bible says careless words stab like a sword. And wise words lead to healing. And so if your wife, just pretend, theoretically, occasionally can be careless with her words. I don't know. Let's just say I've heard before that that can happen. And then you're just careless with yours. I swear, you get in this verbal sword fight, and all you got is just people's ears fall off. You don't hear good when you don't have ears. But when you respond in love... I'm telling you, it grows everybody towards Jesus. Now listen, if you write down anything, write this down. Few things will reveal your need for Jesus like your inability to love your bride like he loves his. I, I have been more convicted this week, actually over the last, since saturated, been convicted of this truth. Few things reveal my need for Jesus in my life like my inability to love my wife, like Jesus loves his. And that's the call. That is the call. Fellas, the most sanctifying thing you'll ever do is get married. You did not know what a wretched, black-hearted sinner you were until God gave you a spouse. And then on a daily basis, he reveals to you what a selfish Arrogant. I have so many words in my mind, and every way of finishing them in my mind are inappropriate for sermons. I'm really trying to edit this for your own sake right now. You see, man, a lot of Christian dudes, we, always, we like to throw around this like leadership, like, hey, I'm the leader. I'm the leader of my house. Are you? What does that mean? What does it mean to be the head of the house? What does it mean to be the leader of the house? Here's what it means. It means to be the lead repenter. You're going to be the leader of your house? Here's what this means. You should be apologizing more than everybody else in your house. You should lead the way, and I'm sorry. I'm sorry should come out of dad's mouth more than everybody else in the house. Why? Because you're the leader. Martin Luther said when Jesus said uh, repent, that repentance should be daily. That our kids and our wives should hear us say, basically on a daily basis, I am so sorry, I have not done this right. I should repent. To be the leader in your house means that you should be the lead thanker. I mean, let's be honest. If you're married with kids, she does a hundred times more in a day for your family than you do all month put together. Drill, drill. Sorry. 
You should be the lead disciple. You should be the lead disciple. You should be the one most concerned about the children's relationship with Jesus. You should be the one most concerned with your wife's relationship with Jesus. You should be the the one most concerned about your walk with Jesus. You should never be the one making excuses of why you can't be at church or you can't be in a disciple group or you can't be a part of the spiritual, spiritual formation of your church. I mean, one of the saddest things we've ever done in, in human history, and I could, I could walk through recent American history with the Industrial Revolution and when man went away from the home to work and, and things like the Lazy Boy and the Lunchbox were invented and we left the, the, the spiritual formation of our children up to mama. You should be the lead disciple, disciple and discipler in your home. And if you're like, well, I don't know the Bible, well, learn it, Scooter. You know a bunch of irrelevant crap at work. You do, man. You know all these numbers and forms, and you know what the NASDAQ's doing? Great. If that's your job, you should know that stuff. But knowing Jesus is more important than knowing that stuff. You should be the lead servant. You should be the lead servant in your house. I mean, honestly, look, I get it. It's just confession. You know, you get, you get this mentality that you're done with work. You realize every time you walk back in the house, it's just second shift, bro. It is. And, man, in a hot minute, you can just walk in, feel all entitled, get to the couch with the remote, catch the game, and do nothing, and your wife is serving her tail off, and then we think we're the leader. What are you leading? What ends up happening is you're doing a great job leading these people at work that you barely know and would leave you for a 10% raise like that to the neglect of the people that would stick for you forever. It's just true. We should be the lead servant. We should be the lead sacrificer. We should be the first one in our homes to give up whatever for the sake of our family. That we should be consistently using the authority that God has placed on us to leverage that for the good of everybody that he's placed under our authority. That's what it means to be a leader. You want to be a leader? You see, if, if serving is beneath you, leadership is beyond you. And in our homes is where it starts. And man, pray for me. Pray for me. I can leave with such clarity here at this place and go home and just kind of get super lazy. I'm so convicted by these verses. And last week we said, listen, that a woman's two biggest pitfalls, generally speaking, are comparison and perfectionism. Men's two biggest pitfalls are this. Most men either, either err on, in one of these two extremes, either selfish passivity or selfish aggression. You see, some men go to selfish passivity. See Adam in the Garden of Eden. Adam stands there like a dud and lets the enemy have the loudest voice in his wife's life. And the Bible says that he was with her. Literally in Hebrew, it means elbow to elbow. And a lot of times, husbands, a lot of times, we don't love our wives enough to confront sin in their life, to confront them. Because really what we do is we just love, we really just love us. And, and I'm telling you, it's crazy. The biggest, baddest, toughest, meanest men in the world are afraid of our wives. And so we just abdicate responsibility. I'm telling you, man, you could want to fight with me right now, physically or theologically. I'll take either one. I really don't, either one. I'm, I'm good at both. 
You can yell at me, I'll yell right. It's going to be good. And I can go home and be afraid of the opinion of my wife, the five-foot-whatever, 190-pound business <laughs> wife. Or, or then sometimes you hear a sermon like this. Here's the dangerous thing. You hear a sermon like this, and then you go home and you shout a cowboy up in your, like, false manhood. And it goes to, like, selfish aggression. And then you begin to, we begin to use our strength for us. We begin to use our money for us. We begin to use our authority for us. And neither of those, Jesus never did either one of those. So husbands, husbands love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. You see, think about this. Just very, I mean, we'll go like first grade level here. As you think about how Jesus loves you, if you're a Christian, don't you look at that love that he has for you. Don't you look at that relationship that you have with him and you think, this is better. Like my life is better. Even if the surrounding circumstances in your life and following Jesus, even if they all went downhill, you, on the inside of you, you as a human being are better. Can your wife say that about her because she married you? That's a part of what it means to love your wife like Christ loved the church. You see, he says, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word so that he might present the church to himself in splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing that she might be holy and without blemish. This means that when Jesus takes us, we're a hot mess, and then there will come a day after what we call progressive sanctification that Jesus presents us to the Father as holy and spotless without blemish. That's a process. And then the Bible is saying, and in a similar way, husbands, you meet your wife, and then... By the time you're done being married, when one of you is dead, that the, the wife could be presented as better. Now, he says, sanctifying her with the washing of the word, husbands, lead spiritually. Lead spiritually. I'm going to make this very simple. First of all, we are a Bible-teaching church. If you're like, I don't know the Bible, if you don't know Romans right now, then re-listen to it again. We did every word in the book of Romans. Learn it. Learn it. Here's what you learn. You learn what's important to you. You just do. You learn what's important to you. And if this isn't important to you, you're never going to know how to love your wife well. But lead spiritually. This means pray for her out loud. Well, pastor, I ain't good at praying. Well, get good at it. It's not hard. Here's what you do. You take your wife by the hand every night before you go to bed or every morning when you get up. And you say, how can I pray for you? And then you know what she's going to do? She's going to say stuff. You know what you should do? Pay attention. And then you just, here's how you pray. Then you just bow your head. You can write this down if you want to. And just say, dear God. And then you just say the words that she just said to you. And then you say, amen. And when you open your eyes, she's going to be crying. And you're going to say, what's wrong? And nothing's wrong, bro. Nothing's wrong. You did it good, okay? You know prayer is the only place that we can fight for the hearts of our wives? It is. Man, there's, no, there's not dragons to slay. It says spiritual ones now. 
And so it is the place that you go to war for her. And you pray for her out loud. And again, wives, remember last week, okay? Just remember, don't screw up. Don't screw this thing up. Don't correct his grammar. Don't correct his theology. Don't, as he's praying for you, don't be like, that's not what I said. Don't, okay? <laughs> Just the spirit knows before a word is formed on our mouth, okay? And just when, when you remember last week, I said that men are like puppies. They repeat what's rewarded. So reward him. Give him a treat. Just a little, Hercules, Hercules. Good prayer, okay? That's it. So that's one way you can begin to spiritually lead if you're not. Another way is this. I mean, it's not talk about the sermons. In here, in here, write, just write one thing down. Just one thing, man. Do you know the, the women in our church probably 10 to 1 take notes as compared to the men? They do. You got to sit back there like, oh, this is good. How do you remember anything, man? Be serious about your discipleship for a second. Write one thing down. When I define one word, when I, you know, agape, write that down. And then later you'd be like, what you think about that agape? All right, whatever it is, man. <laughs> Husbands, you know you got to know nothing to disciple your wife. You, you just ask a question. And they're like, oh, cool, I'll talk for a lot. A lot. And then you'd be like, me too. And she, I swear, boy, she's going to be like, that was amazing. <laughs> it's not hard, man. It's really, it's really not. Ask a question. Be in a disciple group. That's it. Have some conversations about Jesus stuff, and you can lead spiritually. Now, here's the thing you have to understand. It is a process. This thing, verses 26 and following, it is a pro You're not sanctified overnight. And I think a bunch of men... Um, we, we see our marriage like a snapshot instead of a process. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, God tells Adam. The Bible says that, that he creates Adam, he puts him in the garden, and he gives him this command. Subdue and cultivate. Subdue and cultivate. And men, a lot of times when it comes to our marriages, man, we crush the subdue and we abdicate the cultivate. Here's what I mean. When we see her, when we meet her, when we're trying to subdue her, man, we got game. I mean, we study her. We ask her out. We go to play. We eat more freaking frozen yogurt than you've ever eaten in your life. Who eats frozen yogurt? You know what I'm saying? Guys dating do. Just eating it. Oh, man, I love this. Watch some stupid movies that you would never watch. Subdue. And then you get married, say, I do, and then you're done. And you're just halfway there. I'm telling you, we were on a hunting trip this week, and I began to think a lot of times men treat marriages like we treat deer hunting. You chase, you study, you pursue, then you bag it, you hang it on the wall, and then you just ignore it the rest of your life. You married? Yep, there she is right there. All right, what y'all do? <laughs> and yet what God has called us to is to cultivate. Cultivate. Cultivate, man, that's a gardening term. That means create the kind of environment where she can be everything that God has called her to be. That we never stop pursuing. We never stop dating. We never stop. Here's the thing. Last week we talked about the, the fundamental question every man has is this. Do I have what it takes? In the heart of every woman, they have this fundamental question. Am I valuable? Am I lovely? 
I'm telling you, it's why my little girl puts on a dress and comes and stands in front of me and twirls around because she wants to hear her daddy say, you are so pretty. And I don't care if you're 8 or 88, it's still deep down in here. Am I lovely? Am I valuable? And listen, fellas, it is tough to be a woman these days. They live in a world that says if you're not beautiful, then you're not lovable. And the standard of beauty on the front of the magazines is literally impossible. Even the girls they take the pictures of to put on the magazines couldn't even keep up with their own picture because of all the Photoshop. You don't believe me? When you get out of here, don't do it in here, YouTube um, Photoshop pizza. They took Photoshop, they took a piece of pepperoni pizza and turned it into a bikini model. And you look at it and you're like, wow, that is a piece of pepperoni pizza. It's not even a human being. And so there's this fundamental question deep in every woman's soul. Am I lovely and am I valuable? And I'm telling you, the enemy whispers, nope. Not, if you, not unless you can provide this or look like that or seek the approval of men. And yet we know the gospel... The gospel says this, ladies, 1 Corinthians chapter 6, you are not your own. You were bought with a price. And this is true for all of us, but listen to this. You know how valuable you were to Jesus? Jesus paid it all. All to him I owe. You know how you know the value of something? The value is not like your, what, your sentiment towards it. eBay taught us this. The value of something is what someone is willing to pay for it. So you got some dumb shirt, and you think, oh, this is worth 100 bucks. Put it on eBay. Nope, worth two, okay? It's just true. Put you on eBay, Jesus goes, I'll pay it all. That's how valuable you are. Husbands, God put you in your wife's life to be an echo of the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Here's what she wants from you. She wants to be valued. She wants to be valued. And ignoring her devalues her. You see, one of the things that I try to ask Gretchen is this. I say, babe, do you feel appreciated? Do you feel valued? Because I feel it all for you in here. But if it just stays stuck in here and it's not communicated towards you, then, then it's, it's, it's irrelevant. Literally, I asked her this the other day. She's like, you know how you can really value me? And I was like, what's that? She handed me a thing of laundry. <laughs> Glory to God. I'm folding Everything except the fitted sheet. I don't, you got to be some kind of voodoo ninja to get that thing. I said, like, baby, I can't even. I just put my leg in it. Needed help. Hey, fellas, here's some ways you can value your, your wife. You can value her with your eyes, meaning you only have eyes for her. She is your standard of beauty. You want to devalue your wife, you let your eyes go to anybody else. And you, you try to talk yourself into it all you want to, but nothing will devalue your wife like you looking at somebody else, whether it's a picture or a person. Nothing will. That, that you fix your eyes on Jesus, and then you fix your eyes on her. That's how you value her. You value her with your mouth, the things you say to her. I hope and pray you're not dumb enough to ever cut your wife down or ever make some kind of negative physical comment, you know? And I don't care. Maybe she's put on a few since you got married. You ain't exactly the Tarzan you were back in 76 either. All right, Hoss? Yeah. You speak blessing over your wife. Again, careless words stab like a sword, and wise words lead to healing. And the tongue is the power of life and death. Are you speaking life over her, or are you speaking death into your marriage? So you value her with your eyes. You value her with her, 
your mouth, you value her with your hands. Every time your hands reach out to her, are they to serve her or to take from her? You think about it for a second. I mean, she's not a sanctified prostitute. Just because you got married, you get what you want when you want. That is not how this thing works, man. You love her and you serve her. You use these things to serve her, not just be a taker, taker, taker. Boys always take, men serve. And you value her with your time. You see, because she looks at you and you have enough energy and you always have enough time to do whatever you want. And yet when we give them our leftovers, I'm telling you, you would feel devalued too. Look, I'll be real practical. If you're married with children, you get one hobby. Choose wisely. One hobby. There's a whole bunch of golf that I go, no, I can't play. I, don't play. I have one hobby. It's hunting. That's what I do, okay? Any extra time, I'm going to do that. I'm not going to stack this thing up. And I'm going to check with my wife. And I'm going to not, and Gretchen, man, she does not run a tight leash. It's not like one of those kind of things. She, and she encourages me to have a hobby. She knows we all do better if I have a little bit of that kind of stuff in my world because I'm not all crazy, all right? But listen to me. I'm telling you, if all of your time you want to spend not with her, what do you think that communicates to her? And if you ain't ready to do that, brother, you ain't ready to be married. You ain't ready to be married. You value her. And so he keeps going in verse 28. I love this. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh. Who is this talking to? Men. This isn't talking to you women, okay? I don't know a woman that loves her flesh. No matter how in shape you are. My wife is ripped, man. And she'd be like, look right here. When I do like this, I got this little thing right here, you know? Every girl I know hates the way they look. Well, we'll you should pray about that. We'll talk about that sometime. And every dude I know loves his flesh. Big old fat, hairy, out of shape. Ain't worked out since the Nixon administration. Catches a little glimpse of himself in a hubcap, and he's like, yep, look at there, still got it. <laughs> it's just a fact. So he's talking about men here. When it says, in the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies, thinking about this, man. The day you got married, you were an expert at taking care of you. You were an, there is no more selfish human being than a single male, grown man. And here's what I mean. You know you. You know what you want. You know what you need. No one has to tell you what you won't need. You know, because you know you. You're driving around in your truck. Nobody has to say, hey, I think you're thirsty. You know you're thirsty. And what do you do when you know you're thirsty? You pull the truck over, and you get you something to drink. And you know what you get you to drink? You always get you what you like to drink. You're really good taking care of you, are you not? And the scriptures say, all right. That's been practice for all these years. And the way that you've learned to take care of your wants and needs, now you transfer that and you become an expert at taking care of her wants and needs. Without anybody telling you, how do you do this, fellas? you got to study her. And don't be telling me, well, she's confusing. I understand, man. Part of the glory of being married is you get a little bit of a new human every day. You spin that wheel every day, but come on, happy. Give me happy. Happy, happy. You do, man, a little bit of roulette, but it's part of it. It's a fact. Here's what 1 Peter 3, 7 says, Likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way. Literally, in the Greek, it says, live with your wives as unto knowledge. It means you become a student of hers. 
And I know it's complicated, but so is fantasy football. You figure that out. Man, I know when the deer are going to walk. You understand? Some of you fellows know when the waves are coming. So you become a student of her and you learn her in order to meet her wants and needs. He says, for no one has ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it just as Christ does the church. Here's the definition of love, nourish and cherish. Some translations use the words provide and protect. Part of the way you love your wives, first of all, is provide. And that means, yes, food and clothing and living indoors and that kind of stuff. But it also means like companionship, providing providing. Uh, a, a companion in the gospel. And it also means protect. And yes, that means defend her, for sure. You know? But it also means that you, you cherish her. That means you fight for her and not with her. Now, the problem is there's a lot of people that provide without cherishing. Well, she knows I love her because I, you know, I, I, I do the weed eating and I work and provide for her this home and food. Look, a possum provides that. You might need to raise the standard a little there, Hoss. You understand? And yet there are some people that are like, no, I love her because I cherish her. Yeah, but you don't have a job. I know the Beatles saying all we need is love, but they didn't make it. You understand? In fact, 1 Timothy 5, 8 says this, if anyone does not provide for his relatives and especially for members of his own household, he has denied the faith and is worse than an unbeliever. What does that mean? Unbelievers go to hell. You don't provide for your wife? There's like a basement of hell. And they're like, yep, yeah, no, keep going. Keep going. No, you live down there, okay? That's what this says. And so we are to love, to provide and protect. Verse 30, because we are members of his body, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. You leave and cleave. Verse 32, this mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. So here's the point. I just stole it from what we already read. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. So what does it look like to love her? I would see 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 11. If you want to go back to the Act Like Men series, I unpack what each one of these phrases mean. And I'm telling you with great conviction as I look through this list of what love looks like, not what love feels like. I feel so much love for my wife. I'm telling you, if I look at her in the face, I can talk to you all all day long about Jesus and stay fine. If I look at her in the face for more than 30 seconds and tell her how I love her, I turn into Robert De Niro. My face turns inside out and I'm like, I love you. You talking to me? That's what happens to me. I can't hold it together. I don't know what it is. I have a lot of emotion for that girl. But when I look at what loving her is, I don't do a very good job. Listen, love is patient and kind. Have you ever used those words to describe me? I mean, honestly, have you ever been talking to somebody like, where do you go to church? Oh, I go to 1122. Oh, I've heard about that. Tell me about your pastor. He's patient and kind. Have you ever? See, now you're just laughing at me, hurting my feelings, but whatever. Love is patient and kind. It doesn't envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. See, arrogance is you think you're better than everybody else, and rude is treating them that way. It does not insist on its own way. 
It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. As for prophecies, they will pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. As for knowledge, it will pass away. For we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Now, this next verse is getting me. It says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man... I gave up childish ways. The childish ways in this context are the opposite of what the definition of love is. That means when you're impatient, when you're unkind, when we're envious, when we brag, when we're arrogant, when we're rude, fellas, to our wives and our family, you're acting like a boy. You're acting like a child. I just told the wives last week that their job was to make you feel like the man. Well, then be the man. And be the man is not bowing up your chest and being loud and proud. Actually, being the man, according to 1 Corinthians 13, is to be a loving husband to your wife. And so here's your action steps. Here's what you can do, very practically, okay? I know you're not a complex creature, so I'm going to put this on the bottom shelf. Number one, say thank you. When's the last time you extensively thanked her for all that she does and for who she is and who God created her to be. And to get on your face before your heavenly father and thank him for knitting together in her mother's womb this woman that then he would put in front of you and join you together for life. Because I'm going to tell you, when you, if you will pray for your wife with a sense of gratitude, nothing will grow your heart for her like that. Say thank you. Secondly, same thing as last week, this top two, confess and repent. Confess and repent. And I mean really confess and repent. Don't make a case. Because we're great at making a case and making excuses about why we're not doing our part. Don't do that. Confess and don't defend. And don't defend. And listen, ladies, don't screw this thing up. The moment he starts, I'm like, it's about time. I've been waiting on this since 1980. Nah, man, just... <clears throat> A couple weeks ago, I wasn't sure if I was going to share this, but whatever. Your pastors take this whole Jesus thing more seriously than you know, and we were getting ready for Saturated, and we have this group called the Pastoral Leadership Team. It's a group of pastors that helped me shepherd this thing. And in order for us to be ready for Saturated, we just believe we can't, we can't expect you to go somewhere we're not going we can't lead what we don't live. And so we sat in an office back here, and we just, with the pastor, says, what areas of repentance do you need to confess and repent in your life so that we are ready for this revival that God wants to bring our way? And we're praying for one another, and we're confessing sin, and God just, I, I just began to think, oh, my gosh. I, I need to confess and ask for forgiveness in my home for the way I've been treating them. And so I sat down and I just sent Gretchen a text. And the reason I texted her, she likes to communicate via text. I despise it and she loves it. Because she can, I think she gather her thoughts, she can say exactly what she wants to say, you know what I mean? So I just sent her this. I said, I owe you an apology, a confession. And I'm sure at that moment she thought, oh boy. <laughs> and I said, I think I have been a, I said a bad word. I'm, not, I'm sorry. I can't read it. I said a bad word. I'm going to say jerk, but that's not what my paper says. 
I think I have been a jerk to live with, and I'm sorry. I need your forgiveness. Somehow, I think when I walk through the door that you should worship and adore me. And if you don't, then I act, there's another bad word, I act pouty. I am so sorry. Somehow in my mind, I've slipped into this mentality that you owe me this undying gratitude. And if you even disagree with me about anything, then somehow you're being disrespectful. I need your forgiveness for that. I could go on and on, but it hit me today in prayer that I should confess to you and ask for your forgiveness. I love you. I really do. And I am sorry when I don't love you first like I should and instead I pout in my own selfishness. I'm sorry. That text three weeks ago triggered a work. Look, we have a good marriage, man. We're really into each other. We had great kids. We got a great church. We have a good marriage. And that, that confession and repentance triggered something in our marriage, and God has been doing that work in that thing for the last 20 days or so that I could only describe as supernatural. So husbands, say thank you and confess. Go first. You should be the chief confessor and repenter in your house. And then third, love your wife. Love your wife. This means provide for her, yes, financially and all of that stuff, but also provide for her spiritually and protect her. You protect her in prayer. You fight for her, quit fighting against her, and you pursue her. And I don't mean pursue her so you can get what you want. I mean pursue her heart for the sake of her and to the glory of God. Husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her. Would you please stand and pray with me? Our good and gracious Heavenly Father, God, the only way we pull this thing off is by a supernatural move of your spirit. God, I also thank you that try harder won't work on this one. Communication techniques and marriage books about meeting each other's needs while they are very helpful tools. They will not be the power. God, we know that the only power is in the gospel of Jesus Christ. God, would you remind every husband and every wannabe husband of the power of the gospel in our own lives. In spirit, in a supernatural way, would you fill the husbands of the church of 1122 to be able to love our wives as you have loved us. Sacrificially, and totally and ultimately to the glory of God. God, I pray for an outbreak of confession and repentance with the husbands of this church. God, I pray that you would put to death the ego and the pride in which we typically walk, and you would humble us by the blood of Jesus. And God, I pray, I pray, I pray for a warm, grace-filled reception from our wives, though we don't deserve it. And God, I thank you for your love. I thank you that we can love one another because you first loved us. And we pray this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen.